Hi, this is Jay Todd Anderson, and you are listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Must mean another edition of Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. Hello to you, and it is a great special time this time around. We've been on a little bit of a summer hiatus with encore presentations, but we have an encore return to the studio live. We are all right here, and it's my pleasure to welcome storyboard artist to all the big stars and a personal, uh, just a sweetheart of a great guy. He is J. Todd Anderson. J. Todd, thanks. I appreciate all that flattery. <laughs> lay it on, lay it on. Throw it at me. <laughs> and also, a uh, real treat to be talking live on the telephone to the Nitrate Film Archivist for the Library of Congress and all-around container of all facts movie. He is George Willeman. George, welcome via the phone line. Howdy, y'all. <laughs> nice. George, I heard you did eight, you, you struck eight million movies over the summer. You've watched actually eight million movies, is that right? <laughs> eight million and two. Ooh. <laughs> Snuck another one in there, a guilty yeah, pleasure. Since, since this morning. <laughs> we have all gathered here today to celebrate what we call a perfect movie. And uh, there's, I have to imagine that unless people you know, really pump up the modern production of perfect movies, that, that that list is getting a little bit finite. I haven't seen a really great movie in a long time until... I just watched Strangers oh, wait a on a Train. You saw the last show we did. Yeah. You saw that movie. <laughs> I mean, a new movie. What you, Star for Entertainment? We got Alfred Hitchcock's Strangers on a Train, and man, oh man, what a movie. This is a magnificent indeed. movie. Absolutely one of the greatest motion pictures ever made to come out of Hollywood by an English director, Alfred Hitchcock. Really, really lovely. Well, lovely. What a strange word to apply to that. Let's just say disturbing on so many levels, and I enjoyed it. I and loved it. That's what it. makes Hitchcock great. Hey, before we get into that, this is not some willy-nilly, mamby-pamby, just no, because we isn't. say so. This is very scientific. There is strict criteria for these films to pass this. And gentlemen, there are rules. Rules? Okay, well, uh, Strangers on a Train creates the world it exists in. That's right, and it wholly sustains that world. And regardless of changes in society, uh, Strangers on a, on a Train retains its meaning and entertainment value. And it is never placed in any kind of preferential or numerical order. Uh, it stands on its own scale. Hence a perfect movie. Indeed. So on that note, uh, let's just begin with, uh, let's set the scene. It's a black and white movie for starters. What year was this originally released? 1951. So we've got... Uh, we've Give us got a rundown, George. Over 50 years ago, this was right. uh, laid to nitrate. And what happened in that movie? <laughs> Well, the story basically concerns, as the title says, two strangers who meet on a train. Uh, one of them is the, um, I like to say, the uh, sexually ambiguous Bruno Anthony, and the other one is the ambiguously sexual Guy Haynes, uh, played by Robert Walker and Farley Granger. And uh, the men are, are as different as night and day. Bruno is very gregarious and outgoing. And yeah, I remember, folks, uh, Hitchcock always said the picture's only as good as its villain. And Bruno comes out with a label right up front. He's got a little tie class, Bruno. <laughs> and, Bruno and it's like it. Hitchcock's going to get all that away. He's the villain, folks. We're just going to work this guy until he won't bleed. <laughs> right, and everything about him is loud, including his shoes. Everything. 
And uh, the, the two of them meet on the train and just start talking. Bruno's one of those people who kind of likes to likes to chat up celebrities and sort of be known by celebrities, you know, like those people who hound celebrities for autographs all the time and that kind of thing. But um, they, they have lunch together, and while they're at lunch, Bruno begins to espouse some of his rather bizarre ideas, one of them which is the idea of, of two people murdering the other person's enemy. Basically, the idea of, you know, everybody has somebody they would like to see murdered, but you never would do it yourself because Even you exchange caught. of murders. Don't we have a little, right. little piece of this bizarre conversation? Yes. This is a fantastic do. conversation. Want to hear one of my ideas for a perfect murder? You want to hear the busted light socket in the bathroom or the uh, carbon monoxide in the garage? Neither one. I, I may be old-fashioned, but I thought murder was against the law. What is a life for two guys? Some people are better off dead. Like your wife and my father, for instance. Oh, that reminds me of a wonderful idea I had once. I used to put myself to sleep at night, figuring it out. Now, let's say that, that you'd like to get rid of your wife. It's a morbid thought. No, 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 no. Just suppose. Let's say that you had a very good reason. No, let's, let's, no, no, let's, let's say. You'd be afraid to kill her. You know why? You'd get caught. And what would trip you up? The motive. Ah. Now, here's my idea. I'm afraid I haven't got time to listen, bro. Listen. It's so simple, too. Two fellows meet accidentally, like you and me. No connection between them at all. Never saw each other before. Each one has somebody that he'd like to get rid of. So, they swap murders. Swap murders. <laughs> Each fellow does the other fellow's murder. Then there's nothing to connect them. Each one has murdered a total stranger. Like, you do my murder, I do yours. We're coming into my station. For example, your wife, my father. Crisscross. What? Oh, we do talk the same language, don't we? Well, sure, Bruno, we talk the same language. Thanks for the lunch. Oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I thought the lamb chops were a little overdone myself. Nice meeting you. Now, you think my theory's okay, guy? You like it? Sure, Bruno. Sure. They're all okay. <laughs> They're all okay. Wow, what an actor that Robert Walker was. <laughs> yeah, this little scene here really sets the stage for this movie because um, Hitchcock, being a Jesuit, uh, coming from the Jesuits, uh, was really ensconced into his upbringing and, and biblical upbringing. And one of those things was, if you sin in your heart, you've committed the sin. It's just as if you committed sin. That's where this takes place in this scene of the in movie. In the heart. He commits his sin in his heart. And from that moment on, he's a guilty man throughout the whole picture. Right, George? Right, because Guy, Guy makes the, the horrible mistake of sort of placating Bruno at this point rather than just telling him off and um because in his heart he wants to see his wife yeah he, he wants his wife out of the way he's already planned to marry the congressman's daughter i mean it's already set up we just right. gotta which, another which kind of got me is another reason i think he's really upset with bruno is that bruno calls him on all this stuff and bruno's right in a lot of ways you know that yes one of the reasons he's marrying the senator's daughter is because he wants to go into politics himself and and one of the things you're going to notice in this picture is, as we said in Shadow of Doubt, which is our Hitchcock primer, Alfred Hitchcock primer, in this movie, he does what he does from now on. He kind of 
expels all the dispos- all the exposition in, in a couple of scenes of a couple pages of dialogue. Everything's in this scene that you need to kind of run on this movie, crisscross. Everything's there, and he just uh, goes crazy with this information, and he keeps working it visually, and it's it's quite an amazing ride. And this is this is Hitchcock's um, Hollywood forte. From that this movie on, he starts experimenting with themes like birds, psycho. Uh, but this is how you do it. He's he's almost like looking at the camera and say, "This is how you make a Hollywood movie, folks." Well, speaking of Psycho, we get a little glimpse into the uh, the home life of Bruno, who has kind of a Psycho esque relationship with. <laughs> and his, he has Aunt Clara biz- as his yeah, mother from, from, right. from Bewitched. Bewitched. And that was her very first uh, appearance. And Farley Granger, who is the Keanu Reeves in this picture, right. um, is is replaced by a cigarette lighter. <laughs> As an actor, Hitchcock told you, told you, we have no use for you anymore. Yeah, you know, your 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 useful days are over. We're going to replace you with a cigarette lighter. And all this exposition of him reaching for that cigarette lighter and patting the cigarette lighter. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Well, I was I was reading something this morning about this film, and and it kind of this book that I was reading kind of leads to say that uh, that Hitchcock kind of had Farley Granger pushed on him by Warner Brothers. Boy, that's no surprise. <laughs> and, well, and so was, as as was Ruth Roman. Now Ruth uh, Roman is the Catherine Zeta Jones of her time yeah. in this picture. Because I I read that that Hitchcock really had had William Holden in mind. To play the guy, Ooh, that would have been good, wouldn't it? Yeah. Ooh. Although I have to say, I think it was really well cast. I thought everything really came off well. I thought uh, the the Bruno character did a, He's a the very greatest. good well, job. That's just it. I mean, I mean, that Bruno is so over the top that uh, and having another really, really fabulous person playing Guy would have kind of diminished his character. I think so. In this case, it's kind of good having a having kind of a sock puppet to play Guy, so they can bash him around. <laughs> which which happens quite frequently in in Hitchcock's movies. The villain yeah. is always the character that he really pushes on through the the picture you can just tell he just goes crazy over these villains but the 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 good guy as the keanu farley granger kind of guy who incidentally was working on soap operas up to a couple years ago maybe he still is mm-hmm. uh is plays the straight man like he did in rope uh, right very very straight and then hitchcock just makes all these crazy elements kind of evolve around him right because once um you know once the two separate from their train trip you know, Guy goes on, he goes into to the town of Metcalf to actually meet with his wife, Marion, and try to sort out this, uh, this impending divorce. And the divorce, they don't explicitly say why, but you do find out that she is pregnant with another man's child, so yeah. I'm guessing it's because of infidelity. And this must have been and, so racy for yeah. 1951. I mean, come and, on. Divorce? She actually looks like a lot more fun than Ruth Roman in this picture. Yeah. <laughs> She works at a record see. store, and she's running around with two guys, right. and going to the music bar, going through the tunnel of love, and Ruth Roman just dresses up and looks pretty all the time. You know, no, of course, guy guy puts one more foot in it by by having this big, very visual argument with her, where he's overheard basically saying that he'd like to see her dead. And meanwhile, Bruno, uh, true to his word. That's a uh, domestic and, argument, George. That's what they call it. In domestic picture. argument. Yeah, yeah. We'll have no domestic arguments in, right. the, in the record listening booth here. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, uh, Guy returns to Washington and his, his new fiance, and, and Bruno takes a trip out to Metcalf, where he uh, basically lurks and follows uh, Marion around this little uh, fun fair. 
until he catches up with her on the island and kills her. Kills her. Strangles her. Gone. And, and an incredibly, incredibly wild uh, oh, murder scene that's all seen through the lens of one of her, one of the lenses of her glasses. Yeah, it's this thing with Hitchcock and glasses. It, it starts here. Um, all his women, his his women that he doesn't find attractive, always wear these little round glasses, including his daughter Pat Hitchcock, who reminds the killer of the woman he killed. Right. But uh, so Bruno returns to Washington and presents Guy with these glasses and basically to say, you know, I've held up my part of the bargain. Now, now you need to come and, and kill my father. But, of course, Guy had never had any intention of this and finds himself sort of trapped because now he is the main. Yes, but uh, he did it in his heart. That's right. And, he committed and, the sin in his heart. And several people have heard him say as much that he was going to that he would rather see her dead. He was yelling it, so quite quite a few anyone within an earshot. We're talking about Strangers on a Train, a Hitchcock movie, and in our opinion, a perfect film on filmically perfect on ninety one three WYSO. And the, the story is actually based on a novel, correct? Correct uh, by Patricia Highsmith, who uh, also wrote the um, oh, what was it the, uh, the the Mr. Ripley books. Ah. You know, what was the incredible Mr. Ripley or whatever, the one with Matt Damon that came out recently. And and, uh, Hitchcock differs from the book in that he doesn't have the guy character then do the reciprocal murder on on Bruno's uh, father. Mm Mm-hmm. And, which is interesting, I thought. Um, and I don't know if we're going to do a spoiler alert, but I also have to say that I was really pleased with the way it wound up because up until the last bits, I really thought I was going to be feel very cheated. And and the, not in this picture. Yeah. Yeah. Also, it's also uh, interesting to mention that Raymond Chandler was one of the writers on this picture, a very famous uh, noir other, yeah. crime novelist. And so he's Hitchcock's got his perfect writer with him here to to make this movie. And uh, Raymond Chandler is it's his fingerprints are all over this picture. Right. Although I have heard that that the two of them did not get along at all. That doesn't stop making a great movie. <laughs> And that actually Hitchcock uh, got in another writer who was a, an assistant of Ben Hecht's. Uh, has a uh, gosh, I can't even pronounce her name. Zenzi Ormond, and that they did a lot of cleanup on the script, and a lot of what is in the script now is more Ormond's than Chandler's. But Chandler's still there. I mean, there's definitely definitely some Chandler. And that's you know that's just there. that's the exposition of a great director who just takes what he needs and puts mm-hmm. it in place or she needs and puts it in place, and then it's up to him to juggle it and make it work. So we um, have this this cross bizarre pact between strangers that each of them will wipe out the dirty laundry, if you will, of the other, right. and then they're completely unblameable beyond impeachment because why would the, you know? Unrelated. There's no way to sure. pin the other guy for the crime. Bruno thinks it's a good idea, <laughs> and but our but our guy actually uh, backs out on his, his end. But how it all turns, I have to say, I was on the edge of the chair right. um, for the whole uh, sort of wrap up of the movie. It's just exquisite on the storytelling level, he, but also visually, Jay Tom. He this always has a places lot going on. his characters. Uh, uh, Hitchcock always puts his characters in these problem-solving situations in bizarre mechanical devices. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is getting really relevant in this picture. And in this movie, when it first starts, 
uh, an image always trumps copy, almost always. And that's you mean words, of, the written, the, yeah. The and that's one of the challenges in movies is making that screenplay become visual. And in this opening of this picture, it's he starts right out showing you the crisscross action. He shows you uh, Bruno moving from right to left, walking to right to left to the with a, with a beautiful score. And then he's got Farley Granger going from left to right. And when he crosses the floor, you see little diamonds, and those are crisscross. Images. Oh, I didn't even pick and, up on uh, that. Line, George and I learned all this from Wright State Film School with Dr. <laughs> Dr. Chuck Terry when he showed us this picture and showed us all this And stuff. it's just from the knees down. They're just really showing the feet Getting of these going, people. Getting you going, yeah. And, and it's brilliant because you get you know, can tell so much by the way they're dressed. Diamond cab. Um, the oh. crisscross action of the railroad tracks when they're on the train. And then uh, what is it about the, the when they walk on the train there, yeah, George? When, well, when you see them walking up to their seat on the train, you see Bruno walks past a woman who's sitting there with her legs crossed, kind of <laughs> kind of loose. And then as Guy passes, he passes a woman whose legs are very tightly held together, very kind of virginal. And, and This is all very Hitchcock. And yeah. when they sit down, they cross their legs and their toes touch, which makes a double X. Right. Which is a crisscross, double cross. And then, and even probably I think one of the best ones and most obscure ones is uh, – when Hitchcock makes his little, you know, patent appearance <laughs> yeah, in the that's film, really good. he's getting, you know, guy's getting off the train. Bruno, uh, Hitchcock is getting on, and he's carrying a double bass. So once again, and they go to double. the they go to the amusement park, which is twenty big shows, Roman numeral. It's 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 in the regular number twenty, but if you decipher That's, that into Roman numerals, it's two X's, two X's, which means they're going to double cross him there. And this all comes from his his upbringing in the I believe it was the Jesuits, right, George? I believe it was, yes. Yeah, and okay. and that's you know they're very image conscious uh, when they're teaching people, and and Hitchcock really starts roaring with this imagery imagery in this picture. You'll see the little crisscross shadows on the ceilings in front of bookcases. It's it's not quite to like where he gets crazy with lights later, but the really even the light theme is touched upon here because right. every time they spill their guts, they're under a light. You know, that's very Hitchcock. Oh. Um, and then even See? you know at the at the sort of the reveal near the end, uh, Bruno. Well, when uh, a guy goes to Bruno's parents' house and is going to tell the father he's not going to go through with it, and and turns out that actually Bruno's there. He says, "I don't like being double crossed." Yeah. So it just continues tells on us we're going into the uh, that we're rounding third in heaven for home in this picture. Yeah. What's interesting <laughs> is I loved the movie. I really enjoyed watching it. Great suspense, great thrill, beautiful and now photography. I'm gonna have to watch it again. To oh, this is a movie. Pick all this stuff the beauty out. and why this is a perfect film is because you can watch this movie over and over and over again and enjoy it every time because. As I said before, this is the pinnacle of his Hollywood movie action. From then on, he's bored, and he starts exploring crazy themes. He gets into the Cold War. He does the birds. He does cycle, like I said before. Um, but well, I mean, don't forget, he's still got a few other little tricks up his sleeve, you know, like uh, uh, To Catch a Thief and Rear Window oh, yeah. and, and Vertigo. But, yes, he. this is the last of his sort of purely Hollywood films. And, then he and it is a great Hollywood picture. He goes, you know, like full color and and sort of all sorts of other experimentation. We're talking about Strangers on a Train, 1951 film from Alfred Hitchcock, and a perfect movie in our estimation. Let's review the rules. rules. Let's talk about uh, does it sustain, I mean to say hold up to rule one that it creates the world it exists in? Oh, absolutely. That's Hitchcock's double-cross world there. Yeah. yeah. How would you explain, how would you describe it, George? It's, a, it's an interesting microcosm of sort of the rich 
everybody in this house, all you see in this film are rich people, you know, and they're sort of rich, the rich Washington. <laughs> they have rich hobbies. One of my favorite lines from Guy is, or from, uh, from Robert Walker, he says, Guy, you do things. Yeah. <laughs> you do things. What's it like? It must be something doing things. <laughs> Robert Walker, so you can't stop watching this guy. He's so good. Well, and the interesting thing about Robert Walker is he had been very much typecast as Mr. Nice Guy in so many films, like uh, uh, Since You Went Away and, and whatnot. And in this one, he gets to really play a really great psychopath. Which is really where he excelled at, I we think. All the other really chumpy films where he's is, a good boy next door. I don't buy any of that stuff after watching this picture because well, I think that uh, the really sad thing is that he died very shortly after this film was done. Yeah, kind of tragically, 51. unnecessarily. Yeah. It was a mistake. And his a... son was an actor, and he looks very Just really looks like look him. like him. <laughs> so, it... for those of you who are, are Star Trek aficionados, uh, the episode Charlie X has Robert Walker Jr. as fitting image of his father. Yeah, without question. Certainly creates this world, absolutely sustains it. At no point are you sort of jerked back out of it. You're, you're in that world from, from the first shots uh, to the very end. And as far as rule number three, uh, cultural changes and it's still having relevance, there's no question. Oh, I loved right. it. It's a we perfect... still have people who want to kill other people and you still have... Uh... <laughs> exchange murders and they're just not as formal about their murder exchange or they... <laughs> They don't just get, they don't get as ostentatious as these guys do, you know. Yeah. And the, and plus our tennis is all professional now. You know, <laughs> he's playing amateur tennis here at. Uh, I think that that really is Penn Station, New York Penn Station that we see there. Which I is think it is. Off. They did mention that this one has a lot of location stuff, which is again kind of unusual. Unusual for, for 1951 50s. Um, remember crisscross action, the tennis match. You know, they're going back and forth, back and back forth, and, forth. and the uh, everything in the tennis rackets is all crisscrossed and, well, and then, everything. And don't. Man. And don't forget the real lead character of the film, the cigarette lighter. Yes, that is <laughs> the lead character. Has, 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 little cross. has the crossed tennis yeah. rackets on there from A to C. I so that's the kind of imagery that any... will sustain this film forever. You know, mm-hmm. this kind of image theme. Uh, this is how he powers on through with his narrative is with this this uh, theme of images. How early well, on in the, in, the, in the production of this do you suppose that he set that all down or did he just have that in mind and everywhere he could one, he drew an X? It's amazing, isn't it? He drew an X I mean, and so made rich. it work. That's an artist, boy. Yeah, Hitchcock, I mean, Hitchcock comes from an art background also. His first thing in films was as an art director and a title designer. And so he always said that when he did a film, the fun for him was designing it. He'd sit down, he'd work it all out, he'd draw up the, the set designs and the, you know, the movements and all these little things. And when he was done that, with that and it was time to start making the film, that's when he got bored. I must say that he was one of my greatest influences when I first got into the movies drawing because he storyboard. storyboarded everything. And, and I studied his stuff. And when George and I were in film school, we really went into his films hard. And I remember one of his interviews where he said he had to hold up a card, a title card for the movie, and they said uh, so-and-so was running out of time, and he used a candle that was burning from both ends. Mm-hmm. And that's just so Hitchcock, you know, to tell, because they don't have words. It was a silent movie, and he held up. And that, I, I do believe that's, it was that from an interview. That sounds very familiar. I'm sure our radio listeners will inform us, which 
interview that was. <laughs> As from our letters from the last Hitchcock picture, um, we had quite a few people write us and, and set us straight. So it, it is interesting that from uh, just your your specialty, uh, Jay Todd, a storyboard artist, that was he one of the first to storyboard everything? I mean, was he? Uh, we don't even know if he storyboarded everything, but yeah, he was a major proponent of that of working everything out visually, rehearsing it on paper. It's going to save film, isn't it? And when I met the Cohen brothers, we really referenced Hitchcock tremendously on Raising Arizona, you know, and uh, uh, quite a, I remember a few, quite a few conversations about Hitchcock and, and, because uh, I was just enamored by his process of storyboards back then. Now so, they just pay me the money. <laughs> now, one of the, speaking of like uh, storyboarding and pre-designing the films, one of the most interesting things about Strangers on a Train is this, this film came at the end of a really bad streak for him. He had had four films in a row that were all flops. And, and things were kind of, you know, not looking good for him. And he knew this one had to be successful. So he made some changes in it to try and, you know, make sure that it was successful. But what is interesting is now we have two different versions of this film that exist. And I think on the DVD, that I know on my DVD they have the two versions. And I think the newest one, the, the two-disc one, also has it. Are they both perfect movies? And yeah, they're close enough. The, the thing I can't speak on this one, folks. I haven't seen the other version. I have one in, one version that I embrace, like a small yeah, stuffed animal, the, and that's this picture. I think the actually the, the Hollywood version was his final cut, and I'm thinking that the the longer version, like two minutes longer, was like a preview version. They were calling it the British version, which it may well be, but the material that he cut out of the film was totally superfluous. It's not needed in the film. So it's nothing and, added. It was only something. Some things extracted. Well, he he extracted two scenes from from the film, and then uh, and they are in the British version. But then the ending that's on the American film, the last little bit on the train before the fade out, that is missing from the British version, which is really strange. Supposedly, because it involves a, an Anglican priest, he he took it out so it's not upset the Church of England. Uh huh. Ah. But uh, but it's a really great. I mean, that's great the way that ends. The, the British version ends very clumsily, like someone like turns off the light too soon or something. But, seems uh, like it was an error. Because well, this, it... the, the better hit that spoiler alert. Uh-oh. Better Uh-oh. hit Uh-oh. that All merry-go-round right, scene at the go. end. You're going to see a lot of familiar Hitchcock themes. You're going to see feet on hands and hoofs and little kids laughing while everybody's being stepped on, fighting, <laughs> and it's just. <laughs> That's the wild ride at the end <laughs> on this picture. You're going to see the famous foot on a hand that he uses when he's trying to get rid of somebody. But again, right. he, he puts them in this crazy mechanical atmosphere and, well, and chops again, them up. The, the, we should say that the merry-go-round just actually spins off. It starts going so fast it spins off its axis, throwing it's, people and, yep. and, and, and just shrapnel everywhere. Well, and there's a really great moment, very Hitchcock, where there's a mother who's screaming, my boy, my boy, you get him off, and they cut to him, and he, little boy's on the horse having a great time, <laughs> laughing. And, and they, and they uh, this old guy crawls underneath that he goes, I can handle it, and the other, one cop tells the other cop, he better not, and he goes, well, do you want to try it? No, that's, that's fine. <laughs> Takes these little interludes out of the movie and makes you laugh, and then he cuts back to the action. Right, and the supposedly the, the old guy crawling under the uh, the um, merry-go-round is not a process shot. And Hitchcock afterwards said that he would never allow anyone to do that again. Well, you know, they got the scared. shot. What does he care, right? Yeah, and yeah, process yeah. shot means... Uh, Meaning uh, that they would have like done the, a plate of the merry-go-round and then matted in the actor. Oh, rather it, than actually have him crawling under the spinning merry-go-round. Wow. 
The real thing right there. Mm-hmm. It's a perfect movie in every way. It's uh, what we celebrate Fridays on 91.3 WYSO. Strangers on a Train, Alfred Hitchcock's 1951 release. I think it qualifies. I think there's no oh, question about it. You know, if you want to own a movie, this is a good movie to own and put on your shelf because it's just a, a marvelous kind of visual delight every time you watch it. No question about it. So um, it wins. I have no qualms with your your uh, almost sterling always opinion, and uh, I agree wholeheartedly with this one. It's uh, Strangers on a Train on Filmically Perfect here on 91.3 WYS. So, gentlemen, we are quickly running out of time. Gentlemen, always a pleasure. Are we gonna Are we gonna tip the hat about next week? Oh, we can't. We can't. Can't do it. All right, that's fine. So you just well, got to tune in. If we tell you, we'll have to kill you. In the pot. <laughs> I can almost smell it now. Gentlemen, thanks so much. Dave Todd Anderson, storyboard artist to all the big stars. Thank you. Always my pleasure. George Willeman from your new palatial estate in Culpeper, Virginia. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's always such a pleasure. Thank you. We'll meet you back here next time. Thank you for listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Please keep an ear out for new episodes of Filmically Perfect. Coming very soon to iTunes and hosted on our website, www.perfectmovie.net. See you, please.